Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. We've been on holidays for the last couple of weeks as we focused on recording a whole slew of new content and letting our audience enjoy the U.S. Thanksgiving festivities. And of course, by festivities, we mean Black Friday. Black Friday sales estimates showing a 14% increase on 2018, coming in at around $20 billion, but that's still a far cry from the more than $38 billion of Singles Day. We've got a lot of great guests and content lined up for you now to help close out the year and take us into CNY. And yes, we'll soon be getting back to talking about market entry strategies for brands looking to enter China. But coming out of the break, we're going to bring you something special and a little bit outside of our usual topic arena. On today's show, we talk with Jordan Rosenberg, a blockchain consultant who spent 10 years in China and is now based in Southeast Asia. Jordan was kind enough to come on the show to help us unpack the relationship China has with blockchain and how unique it is given the state of banking and China being a mostly cashless society. We talk about digital payments and its impact on Bitcoin, as well as why China has been the front runner in Bitcoin mining as well as the global leader in producing the hardware to do so. We also discuss how or why the value of the renminbi might have been a part of the frothiness of cryptocurrency valuations globally and what the future of blockchain and Bitcoin look like in China. I hope you enjoy it. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Jordan, thanks for coming on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Why don't we start with a brief history of cryptocurrency in China? Sure. Sure. So uh, cryptocurrencies were created around 2007 in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. This is all referred to in the Satoshi Nakamoto uh, Bitcoin white paper that kicked off the uh, field. And uh, it was noticed very early on in China. In fact, uh, China historically had been near the front of the digital currency space. One of the earliest uh, cryptographers that uh, are often referred to as a group uh, known as the cypherpunks, which includes people like Julian Assange of uh, WikiLeaks fame, um, is a guy named Wei Dai. Certainly through him and other academic researchers, uh, there's been an interest in, in cryptography. The necessary sort of intellectual uh, capital it had existed in China already, particularly given the nature of the way that Bitcoin secures the network, which is something called proof of work. This creates a need for both server farms and hardware production, which is something where China by then had already been specializing. And so a lot of the earliest uh, companies in the space were created in China. How did you get involved in the space yourself? Like every single person involved, we kick ourselves because of the time difference between when we found out about this thing and when we seriously looked at it. Because that gap is generally the difference between being a billionaire and not. 
Um, I remember hearing about Bitcoin not long after its creation, maybe within the first, let's say, two, three years, because um, I had always been active on Reddit, uh, which is sort of a message board website where you know people can discuss community uh, kind of niche interest stuff. And um, everybody thought it was really cool, but never really looked at it again. And in the second, what is what is generally known as the second Bitcoin bubble in about 2014, it was big in the news when the price reached $1,000. Um, you know, when I had found out about Bitcoin, I think the price was well under a dollar. So certainly that kind of piqued everybody's interest. But that bubble collapsed uh, pretty quickly as well. I didn't really hear much more about it or have any other interest in it. You know, I kind of thought it was a fad. I hadn't really dedicated any time to looking at the actual technology. But what really got me hooked was finding out uh, about some of the newer technologies that were getting developed. Things like Ethereum, at least in concept, were some of the coolest technologies I'd, I'd ever heard of. And, and having kind of been bitten by the bug, you hear stories about things like this quite often, actually, uh, of people finding when they finally really start going down the rabbit hole of looking into what these things are, of people putting themselves in the hospital because they're staying up for a week reading everything they can read and forgetting to eat, forgetting to sleep. And this happened to me, too. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I barely left my room for two weeks. It was the coolest thing I had ever seen. Distributed ledger tech, uh, blockchain, crypto, whatever you want to call it. It sits at the intersection of politics, economics, philosophy, technology, basically everything cool <laughs> in terms of human endeavor. So I, I, I you know, I, it, it was immediately clear to me that this was going to change the world. And, and in particular, at that point, I had already been living in China for maybe six or seven years and had definitely been caught up in the digital payment revolution that happened in China, where people within the space of maybe a year went from being a completely cash-dominated society to never using cash ever, paying for everything with your phone. And so seeing that that was already possible in at least one place where all of the banks could be corralled into agreeing on one unified system for digital payments, understanding that things like blockchain gave the potential for implementing that to the entire world. I wasn't particularly early, but I was early enough that when people started becoming very interested because this started getting into the news, uh, I already had spent the better part of a year doing nothing but reading about it. And so I became kind of a resource to people around me because this is a completely new field. People don't really understand it, not because it's hard to understand, but because it's not well understood. You know, my, my progression into it was very natural, uh, just insofar as, as most things are. You know, it, it, it just really piqued my interest. Uh, and maybe that's a function of my own personality, but uh, it, it worked out such that I had already uh, developed a, a really firm 
foundation and most of the concepts of how the ecosystems work to to be able to uh, to participate in it when it really started getting a lot of popular attention. Mm-hmm. What about mining? For people who don't know, talk about the state of Bitcoin mining in China, how big it is, and uh, you know, not to lead you, but it it is, or at least it has been, one of the global hubs for mining. So, talk a little bit about the current state of uh, Bitcoin mining in China. Right. There's a there's a very straightforward reason that Bitcoin mining happens in China. To not mince words, uh, China greatly overbuilt their electrical capacity. The Chinese development plans always build in anticipation of demand. So you'll often have power plants that could power humongous cities plugged into a city that nobody lives in yet. The people who are tasked with running this are given targets. Think of it like uh, arrest quotas for a cop. Now, if nobody lives in their ghost city yet, what are they going to do with all this power? And so relationships developed, as they often do, uh, where sort of everything from black to gray to white contracts were hashed out for people to take this electrical capacity and plug it into Bitcoin mining. Um, Because it's extremely energy intensive, whoever can basically provide the lowest electrical cost, which is the primary component, uh, or at least the primary marginal component, they're going to dominate the industry. And when you combine that with the fact that at this point, nearly all of the leading designers and foundries that actually create the mining hardware, they're all Chinese as well. There have been moves to distribute mining globally. In fact, in recent months, there have been some very interesting developments uh, linked to Peter Thiel of PayPal fame, who is making the largest ever investment into North American mining. Uh, Some people are speculating that this could potentially disrupt China's dominance in mining, but for the time being, they are still uh, wildly dominant in it. You know, Bitcoin mining is a very simple business. You have essentially just four costs. You have the cost of the gear. You have the cost of the place to put the gear. You have the cost of the people to run the gear. And you have the cost of electricity. That's about it. Uh, With these simple inputs, the most important variable is the cost of electricity. You also have to take into account that the general public often regards the use of electricity for Bitcoin mining as wasteful, since you're doing a great deal of computing, but you're not actually solving any computing problem. Uh, you're solving sort of worthless problems. Uh, this is what generates the security that that actually gives Bitcoin its value, gives it its unhackable nature. What I would say is that because of all of these sort of global uh, forces, China's really developed a dominant position in mining. And while electricity costs are, are highly variable and subject to global pressures, the place where you put the miners has shown to be somewhat fluid. Uh, in fact, Bitmain, uh, the largest Chinese mining group, uh, has invested pretty significantly overseas in uh, mining facilities because they also understand that that risk factor. Uh, however, in terms of hardware development, um, that seems like it's going to stay put in China, at least for the time being. 
I remember my time in China when it was widely thought that up to 75% of the world's Bitcoin was held in China. Was that at some point an accurate statement? The nature of Bitcoin is that it's pseudonymous. You can't tell from a Bitcoin address where that Bitcoin is. So there really wouldn't be any metrics to pinpoint that. You you could use other uh, methods to estimate it. And that may have been a fair estimate. Uh, in fact, there has been a good deal of speculation that the price increase up to 20,000 uh, US dollars uh, for one Bitcoin was linked to the devaluation in the Chinese currency and that the subsequent collapse of the price was linked to uh, tightening on uh, payment gateways for Chinese to purchase Bitcoin. So thereby limiting the capital inflow into the crypto ecosystem. One of the fundamental things about Bitcoin, which is a good proxy to use for, crypto, for cryptos in general, is that it's sort of like a global currency everywhere. If you have US dollars and you go to whatever country you please, you should be able to turn them into something else. If you have uh, a bunch of Philippine pesos, you might have trouble doing that. Bitcoin kind of serves as an intermediary. No matter what country you go to, somebody's going to want to buy it. And so it kind of serves as a second currency everywhere. In that regard, it was extremely useful to capital flight, frankly, you know, as a means of buying something that could then be sold elsewhere for other uh, financial instruments. I, I think that was a big use case in China. And a lot of the hype surrounding it was probably linked to that use case, um, which is why China was extremely quick to shut that all down. What is the prevailing the prevailing use of blockchain in China then? Like, what is it primarily being used for? How much is it being used? I, I remember at one point there was a real estate development that said, you know what, we'll accept um, Bitcoin uh, as payment for, for purchase uh, until the government came along and, and shut that down quickly. But, you know, what is it being used for in China? Right. I, I think the best thing to answer this is to reframe the question. Peter Thiel actually put this very well uh, recently when he said that uh, China loves blockchain, but it hates crypto. So let's kind of untangle that for a second. What's meant there is that blockchain is basically just a distributed database. It's a database that anybody can look at and trust that the data they're looking at is correct, that the integrity of the data is, uh, is sufficient. Now, for use cases where that's advantageous to China, they love it. For example, if um, all of my conversations, movements, uh, transactions, etc., are permanently logged into a forever chain of data, the usefulness of that is, is pretty obvious. However, the use case of nobody needing a bank because everybody is just using Bitcoin and looking at the same financial ledger instead of using the banking system, well, that's not going to fly. So it really depends on whether 
you're saying what is cryptocurrency doing in China, to which I would answer not much. ICOs were made illegal almost as soon as they became popular. Uh, cryptos heavily regulated and not treated particularly kindly. On the other hand, blockchain is openly supported by the government. I guess to answer your question about what it's being used for, for the moment, I would say most of the non-currency use cases are related to research. But in terms of currency, there is an official Chinese digital blockchain-based currency under development. Yeah, I think that China is treating this technology very similarly to the way that they treated the internet when it first became relevant. You can look at that infamous Bill Clinton quote about trying to censor the internet would be like trying to nail jello to the wall. And that didn't exactly work out very well for people who believed in that thesis because China has the most effective online control system ever developed. So I, I, I think they're looking at it very similarly. They see the potential of the technology, but they see the disruptive potential of the technology as well. And they're being very careful to make sure that they don't disrupt themselves in the process of taking advantage of what they can. I think some of the applications are scary because of the interoperability of the databases. You know, if you have all of your movements and actions logged into a permanent record, which is the nature of blockchain, you know, the, the chain part of blockchain is that it goes back all the way to the first entry in the database. The implications of that are, are scary. People right now are not sure how that will shake out in the long run. Talk to us a little bit about where are a bit of an intro to digital payments and where are digital payments at in China? Okay. Uh, digital payments in China are the only payments in China. Um, they're the only game in town. Uh, anybody who has been to China in the last five, four or five years, been a while now, uh, has noticed you get funny looks if you try to pay for things in cash. People don't have change. Is the equivalent of pulling a Motorola flip phone out of your pocket on a first date. You, you get a look of, is this guy serious? And the reason is that to illustrate how pervasive and how fast the transition to digital payments happened, should you ever happen to find yourself driving through the, 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 the Chinese rural countryside and happen upon a humble woman by the side of the road selling potatoes out of a giant steel drum, you will notice affixed to the drum a QR code. You can't make this stuff up. Every single person in China has a smartphone. Let me repeat that. Every single person in China has a smartphone. If they don't have a smartphone, they can't learn how to use one. They are too old. The poorest person in China that wants a smartphone has one. So there is no reason for anyone to pay for anything with cash. The increased convenience is amazing. It was a bit shaky in the beginning because some of the POS systems were actually POSs, but um, uh, it I, has, I see what you did there, by the way. <laughs> it has progressed to the point where the increased time of waiting for somebody who really isn't paid enough to care about making change uh, to make said change, it's infuriating. 
if you've become accustomed to seamless digital payments in absolute, I mean, literally down to side of the road farm potatoes, it is hard to go back. And it's quite ironic. When I first went to China 10 years ago, you would cross the border in Shenzhen. And even just in the immigration hall, you would feel the drop off as you passed into Shenzhen as everything became run down and not working well. Today, when you pass from Shenzhen back into Hong Kong, it's like going back in time. And people are carrying around little pieces of metal coins in their pocket. It's, it's absurd. The difference between living in Hong Kong and living in Shenzhen in terms of convenience. Next day delivery barely exists in Hong Kong, despite it being extremely small. In China, you can order the most obscure thing you can think of on Taobao and get it probably the next day if you're in a major city. This is some of the leapfrog stuff that China has been able to do because they didn't really have an existing infrastructure. It, it stands to reason that they're going to try to take advantage of this as much as they can. A little bit back to crypto and digital coins. What is the future of, of crypto and, and digital coins in China and, and maybe even globally? You know, I think there's a parallel to the, uh, the Facebook Libra project, which uh, if you haven't read about it in the news, Facebook has been flirting with developing its own crypto, which would be a stable coin backed by a basket of global assets, which would provide the same kind of functionality within WhatsApp that uh, has been available for many years in WeChat to have payments. And this would be a blockchain-based currency. So it would be probably the first really broadly distributed cryptocurrency. China has been discussing developing their own national cryptocurrency for quite a while. Probably any eventual use case will be that. To, to be quite honest, to Chinese people in China, there is simply no need for blockchain at the moment. They already have end-to-end -end digital payments covering every aspect of their life. The reason that cryptocurrencies offered uh, kind of new areas for development in digital payments is because of the fractured nature of global banking, uh, which is even fractured on a national level in most countries. You know, try doing a bank transfer from one bank to another bank in almost any country in the world, and it takes three to five days in the same country. So China had a few advantages there that they could go to their big banks and say, you're going to do this. And uh, that's allowed them to really lead the world in digital payments. So to the average user, there wouldn't really be much benefit even, or, or I guess the best way to put it, most Chinese people wouldn't even notice if the renminbi that they sent to their friend on WeChat or Alipay was based on a blockchain or not, because they're already using a digital payment system for everything. The potential to the rest of the world is to have what's called an infrastructure inversion. That sort of means that all of the pre-existing suppliers of this functionality, which we today call banks, kind of cease to exist. And they don't cease to exist, but they become highly irrelevant. Think of them like uh, the phone company, not telecoms, the phone company. This is you know, not a relevant 
Bell Atlantic is not a highly relevant company these days. And this is because originally the internet was carried along on telephone wires. In some countries, the telephone operators did not like people using the internet and would disconnect your call, uh, much like your mom picking up the phone when you were on AOL uh, in the 90s. I think I'm dating myself there. You might have. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as we all know today, if you make a phone call, even to your next door neighbor, it's going through the internet, the infrastructure completely inverted. That's where the potential lies. So I, I, I think in terms of China, consumer uses of blockchain, somewhat limited, frankly. Most of the use cases that seem cool to foreign users, like, whoa, I can send my friend money on WhatsApp. Cool. China's like, yeah, I've been able to do that for five years. I, I don't know how to live without being able to do that. It's kind of like every other question with China. There's how it relates to the rest of the world vis-a-vis -vis China, and then how it happens inside planet China. You might not see the same progression of blockchain in China that you see elsewhere, because as I said, a lot of those systems already exist there. They're, they're not as useful. It's the same reason that the digital currency space took off so quickly in China, because Nobody had a credit card. You know, people aren't paying for everything with their phone in the West because they've been paying for everything with a credit card since the 80s. What's the benefit of doing it with your phone over a card? Marginal. So to Americans, for example, who've been able to buy something on Amazon since Amazon started, it's sort of like, what's the big deal? You know, and, it, and it's hard to understand exactly how dramatically digital payments have changed the way people live in China without actually going through it, without finding yourself stranded because your phone died <laughs> or forgetting to top up your data connection and then not being able to connect to the network and needing to get on Wi-Fi to pay for coffee. These are use cases and, and problems that people just don't have uh, elsewhere. And, and, and they're pretty unique to China. In, you know, th th think of uh, people sending each other uh, Hongbao or uh, lucky red envelopes um, on WeChat. If I ask you, what is a, what is a Hongbao? You might not even know, right? But because it's so common to do that in China, having that functionality within WeChat is like, oh, wow, I can set a Hongbao. A lot of it just comes down to China sort of not being on the world system in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's that was part of the discussion that I wanted to have was China's role globally and their potential for impact globally. But I think you make a very interesting point about a divergence in innovation where if we say constraints breed innovation, and then we're starting to see this divergence of constraints of, or, you know, where they're not the same, the issues that you have, like you said, not being able to top up you, you, you know your mobile phone uh, uh, data plan so that you can actually have your your LTE in order to pay for your coffee. That's a fairly unique problem to have in China. I, and, I can't tell you how many times. <laughs> yeah, oh no, hold on. Let me get on your Wi-Fi. What's your Wi-Fi password so that I can pay for my coffee? That oh, yeah. where else does oh, where else is that an issue? Right. So as we start to diverge, innovation is going to go a different way in China and different solutions are going to be made in China, but then they might also be siloed 
in China because exactly. they have been exactly. made for China. Because the nature of solving the problem in China is quite different than solving the same problem elsewhere, which is to say that right now in blockchain, everybody's trying to figure out how, okay, we, we got this thing that can send money trustlessly anywhere in the world within about 10 minutes. Can we get that down to like a couple of seconds so we can buy coffee with it? I mean, we're still trying to figure that specific problem out. Now, China doesn't have any problem with it. They're just using a centralized database to do all the clearing. So they, this is a non-issue. How do I get the block time down? How do, I, how do I get confirmations to be faster? How do I actually get somebody to be able to buy a cup of coffee with a Bitcoin? This is not a problem in China. So I think a, a good way to think of it is blockchain, much like the internet, couldn't be a force for great good or a force for great evil. You know, it could greatly empower the vast majority of the people in the world who don't have a bank account. And one of the sort of ideological ideas behind cryptocurrencies is that you're taking the issuing of money out of the hands of governments who historically have not been particularly good at controlling the money supply. The oldest currency in the world is the British pound sterling, and I think it's worth roughly 1% of what it was when it was first issued, something like that. So you see what I'm getting at. Nobody has a good track record on this. And historically, we've always had to trust a central authority with issuing. Uh, trust in a central authority, it's uh, par for the course in China. So, you know, th this, this issue of distributing trust that Bitcoin solves is not an issue China needed to solve the same way. They solved it by saying, no, I'm in control. And this is what's going to happen. So, you know, why can't you send money to your friend on WhatsApp? Because to do that, you'd have to implement a system that could transfer between all of the world's banks at a nominal fee, and this cannot be done. And the only way to create that functionality is to take it completely off that platform. This is not a problem China has, and this is definitely not a problem China wants. Jordan, thanks very much for being on the show today. This has been uh, really, really interesting. Uh, and, and I thank you for not getting too technical, which was uh, something I might have been a little bit worried about, not being that technical myself around Bitcoin and tokens and cryptocurrency and DLT and the rest. So um, thank you for keeping it high level, and uh, but also very informational and very educational. I have one last question for you, though. If somebody, given your vast experience and deep, deep knowledge in the space, and I think a lot of people are curious about whether they should still get in or not, if people want to get involved and get into Bitcoin, cryptocurrency and the like, what is your best piece of advice for them? That's an easy question. Um, you know, cryptocurrencies are a native currency to the Internet and they only exist on the Internet. And if I wanted to find out more about them, guess where I'd go. So they were built by people collaborating on the internet, many of whom not only never met, but had no idea who each other were. You know, the, the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, remains a mystery. So 
anybody anywhere with a connection to the internet can start learning. And it's as easy as doing a quick Google. So I, I would say just flip open your laptop, ask Google, and uh, you shall receive. Jordan, thanks very much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.